I want to share uh, my heart with you before we get going tonight. I, I think we've, we've all come in here in three uh, different categories. Uh, the middle category uh, are the survivalists right now. I think some of you would define your life as merely surviving. Uh, you feel like uh, you're not really living life. You feel like that life is living you. Uh, you, you feel like even tonight, like you're, you're gasping for air. Uh, your schedule, the things that are weighing down on you from a circumstance standpoint, uh, you just, you come in here limping, surviving. There is another category here tonight that would say that they're very much alive. That they're uh, experiencing tremendous life, that uh, joy um, is overwhelming. Some of you can literally feel your heart being out of your chest right now as we just mentioned the Lord Jesus. And the unfortunate thing is that, is that if you're in that category, for the other two categories, um, the, the joyful, life-giving category can be condemning to the rest of us. Oh, oh, oh so there's the joyful person, right? Like, there's the person that has it seemingly all together. They seem like they're doing great. Well, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm hanging on for a, a life rest, right, you know, right now. I hope and pray tonight, though, that those who are experiencing life and joy can encourage the rest of us. There is a, a third category, and that, uh, that would be those who don't feel like they're surviving and don't feel like they're alive, but tonight feel dead. Your heart is beating, but um, you feel lifeless. Uh, I, would, I would describe it this way, you feel numb. Uh, there's been recent hurt and pain, and if someone were to come up and pinch you like you wouldn't even feel it, you feel dead. Uh, I want to I share my heart with all three categories tonight. I'm praying tonight through what will prove to be a very strange passage. I'm praying tonight for freedom for all of us. Survival is no way to live. Those who are dead tonight can experience life, and those who are experiencing life can continue to live in it. That's our hope and promise in Christ tonight. And, and the way that the scripture lends itself, and because we preach here verse by verse, and because every single week here we, we end with Christ, begin with Christ, middle Christ, that means that no matter where you're at tonight, our hope can be in Christ, and that each of us leave not just like a, a coddled, but encouraged eternally in Jesus. You guys know what I'm saying? So that's why, that's why my first scene in a parking lot is so pertinent. Every single one of you have experienced this. Come in a parking lot, you're in a little bit of a hurry. Let's, let's say it's a Walmart, okay, or some of you guys have seen the new uh, sitcom, a Superstore, uh, similar venue, right? And, and you're in a hurry. You're going to Walmart, you're trying to save a few bucks, you, you need two or three items, and, and you're, you're like, it, it has just started like misting a little bit in rain, you know, you got a couple of your kids with you. And so you come down the, the aisle, you, you hadn't seen a parking spot, but you were just pr like, Lord, please, uh, open the parking spot, right? And, and some of you have uh, prayed harder in parking lots than many other places in your life. And, and, uh, and then all of a sudden you see the gold mine, the white lights, right? The reverse lights, you see them and they're three cars ahead, right? And so you do what every good American does in that moment, you turn on your turning signal, right? 
Because at this point in time, there's no one, there's no competition, there's no one else coming down the coming down the aisle. And and you have, if you turn on that turning signal, every single right to take possession of that parking spot that is yours. You were there first, you beat the other person, it's all good, it's all yours, but at the precise moment that that car finds its way on the outer skirts, here comes another passerby. Completely your right. You were there first. You turn on the turning signal first. Like all America moral rules would say it's your parking spot. And in that moment, you decide for whatever reason is to say, you know what? You come on in. It's all yours. And maybe your wife was looking uh, at you in the passenger seat like you're crazy or your spouse. But in your heart, you just have this overwhelming sense of joy. Another scene, uh, you're at La Family, and it just so happens to be the week that uh, many of your couples uh, couldn't make it, and so the meal was relying on college students, God love them, right? Um, and there happens to be a lot of visitors on Sunday, okay, and so you, uh, you, you make your way to the kitchen, and again, the college students and all their love and grace, and they do so well here providing, but you know, you see five jack-in-the-box tacos, and you see a random loaf of bread that looks a week old, maybe even a piece of mold there on the end. And um, you have every right, every right to eat. Like you, are, you are right there in the kitchen. And in fact, like there are others behind you. You're, you're in the right place in line. You have every right to grab one of those jack-in-the-box tacos, to finish off the Diet Mountain Dew, to, to make your way to the dining room. But for whatever reason, in that moment, you decide you know what, I'm just, I'm just gone. I'm just not going to eat today. And maybe it was because it didn't look so good or maybe because it was something deeper happening in you. And so you said to the person behind you, hey, you, you go on ahead, even though there may not be food left over for you. My final scene happened last night, actually. My, my daughter was in a, a spelling bee. Here's a picture of her, uh, just a beautiful little girl. Nine years old now. She has my heart. Uh, I, I'm serious. Like any, any dads that have daughters here, like when you're a little girl, I mean, I, I, I thought she had my heart when she was a baby and then when she was one and she was two and I saw her up there like spelling these words last night and I was like, this girl, I mean, she's got me wrapped around her finger. Like I just, I just love care, this girl. So um, there's a, a gentleman that's leading the spelling bee and, and you guys know, man, you're a parent, you got kids doing stuff in competition, sports, whatever. You find yourself, you know, a little bit antsy, you know? You're feeling a little bit of the nerves. I was a high school college athlete. Like, I know what a game feels like. And, and so I'm like, I'm pep talking Avery, you know? And I'm like giving her Vince Lombardi quotes and, you know, try, trying to punch. She, she wanted nothing to do with the spelling bee in general, you know? She's like, Daddy, I don't want to do this. And I'm, baby, you don't have to. But, you know, it'd be really good for you, you know? And, and um, so she makes it to the sixth round. And, and, um, and then the, the gentleman who's... Uh, who is saying the words, he says this, and I quote precisely. He says, proportion. Well, the moment he says it, okay, and I'm not Mr. Rhetoric, but the moment he says it, I'm like, oh, no. He's just said proportion and not proportion. Now, many of us say that. Like, many of us just, like, speaking fast, we say proportion. But I was like, he, he didn't pronounce it right. And so I look at Avery, and, and I was like, she's going to say proportion. And sure enough, it, with all confidence, P-E-R, P-O-R, and some of you are like, that's right, no it's not. 
Okay, you probably shouldn't be in a spelling bee. Um, now, so afterwards, Avery comes up to me, okay? Avery comes up to me. She's like, Daddy, Daddy, should we go say something to the, to the guy because he pronounced the word wrong? She even knew it, okay? Like, she, she sat down. She's like, Daddy, should we go tell him that he pronounced the word wrong? So in that moment, there's like two sides of me, right? There's like the, hey, punk, like my daughter should still be up there, you know? Like, what's your problem, bro? Proportion. Like, who, who doesn't know how to say proportion, right? <laughs> Proportionally frustrated right now, you know? And, and then there's this other side of me that just looks at my daughter and says, babe, it's okay, you know? Like, it, it's all good at... Things like this are going to happen all the time. Uh, we had every right in that moment to maybe make a fuss and make a big deal and create drama. Instead, in freedom, we just sat down and enjoyed being there together and um, moving on. All three scenarios we've all been at, and I would say all three scenarios at times have made the opposite decision. And so the question is why? We come to these moments where we could give up our right, though we have every right. And sometimes we do and sometimes we don't. And tonight we're going to see an unbelievably interesting scenario in Corinth as Paul has to wrestle and teach and share from the same perspective. But his launch pad is going to be where we were at last week. So look at this verse from last week. Here was our launch pad. This is what we studied. Chapter 8, verse 9. Paul writes, but take care that this, what's the word? Come on. That this right, and I explained to you that another word for right in the Greek would be a freedom. But take care that this freedom or liberty of yours does not somehow become a what? A stumbling block to the weak. And so last week we honed in on, are we in Christ a stumbling block or a servant in other sanctification? We're either one or the other. You can't be three. You're either helping people towards Christ or you're inviting them into darkness. And so with that as his launch pad, I'm telling you what, an incredibly interesting passage about surrendering one's rights. Open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Ooh, here we go. Chapter 9, we're going to study all the way verses 1 to 18. It'll feel like a marathon, but I hope in the end be more like a, a sprint. Here we go. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 1. When you're there, say, I'm there. there. Verse 1, here we go. It will be on your screen as well. Paul says, am I not free? Am I not an apostle, question mark? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? Well, first of all, many of you marriages function this way. You ask rhetorical question after rhetorical question after rhetorical question, right? Most uh, of your conversation sometimes in your marriage, it feels like that's what it is, right? Like, what do you really mean by that? Am I supposed to say yes or no? Any, any like, dudes here, right? Like, anytime my wife asks me a rhetorical question, I'm like, I don't know the right answer, right? Is it supposed to be a yes or no? Paul, in this passage, is going to ask 17 of them. 17 rhetorical questions, okay? And the first one that we have to wrestle with comes here in verse 1. Apparently, what's going on is Corinth is questioning Paul's apostleship, whether or not he is the sent one from God, okay? 
And remember, Paul plants this church, preaches this church. Paul leaves. Some other teachers come, begin ministering. But apparently, like the last several chapters, Paul has gotten word that there are some people that are saying Paul is not an apostle. So verse 2 answers one of these first rhetorical questions. Next slide. Okay. If to others, he says, I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. Well, the first thing that he answers is that he's seen Jesus. In Acts, we learn that to be an apostle, you must have seen Jesus. And on the road to Damascus, at Paul, who was then Saul's salvation, Scripture says he sees the Lord Jesus. He soon goes blind, but he sees the Lord Jesus. Okay? So check one, he's seen the risen Christ. But then what Paul says is, no, no, no. Like, you, you are the proof, Corinth. You are the fruit. He's saying, wake up. Your own understanding of the gospel is proof that God sent me to you to preach the gospel. You are proof and evidence that I am, in fact, an apostle. So then as he continues uh, this um, examination, we see this verse in verse 3. Look at this. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Now, um, in general, I have a very, very big problem and wrestling in my heart with uh, this next question. Am I being defensive or do I have a godly defense? So in other words, when I hear Paul say, this is my defense, I start to like, something in my gut says, is that, is that sinful at all, right? Because I've been in many conversations where I have gotten defensive or others have gotten defensive and it didn't feel very helpful. Are you guys with me? Right. So then there must be a, a situation where you can be, what I would say, sinfully defensive. And there must also be a situation where you can make a godly defense. In the Greek, both of these words are, are, are law words having to do with a courtroom, okay? So making your defense like an attorney, right? So what would a defensive spirit or what would a godly defense look like? I think it's important to define because people are saying you're not an apostle. And so everything he says, like they're attacking the core of who he is. So then we have some questions to answer. Thankfully, thankfully, the scripture makes it clear. First Peter chapter three, look at this. Amazing, look at this. But in your hearts, Peter writes, Honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a what? What's the word? Defense. defense. Okay, thank you. So if we're always prepared to make a defense, same Greek word, then I would say that this would be a good thing. Are you guys with me? If, the, if Peter writes, if the scripture says that we're to always be ready to make a defense, then there, again, there must be a holy kind of defense. He says, always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Here we go, colon, yet do it with what? Gentleness and respect. Well, 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 uh, when I've been in defensive situations, not much of it felt very gentle. You know what I'm saying? Like, as, as you could, like, even see people, like, and, and their physical countenance change. For some of you, your face turns drastically red when you get angry. How many of those of you, that's you, right? You're getting angry right now because I'm, like, bringing up the, okay, yeah. I can tell right now, brother, yeah, either blushing or angry. I don't know. We can work it out later. Just come and see me. I'll confess my sin to you, brother. Anyway, so um, we're to do it with gentleness and respect. Look at this. Verse 16 adds, having a good conscience 
so that when you are slandered, could we agree that this is Paul's situation? Come on. They're, they're like they're saying, no, your identity in Christ is not you. You're not an apostle. You're not an apostle. So that when you're slandered, those who revile, uh, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Now, now some of you are like getting really excited, right? You're like, oh, so if I make a defense in the name of Christ that's gentle and respectful, then at the end of the day, my hope is that they'll be put to shame. Well, that, I'm not so sure that that would be our motive going into it, okay? Our hope is for reconciliation. Our hope is for repentance. The reality, though, is that our response will put uh, those to shame. Verse 17, for it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. So from all that, so that we can understand the rest of 1 Corinthians chapter 9, let's make these two observations. Next slide. A defensive spirit jumps. Come on now. Like at the moment, your spouse says something that like pricks that like that little piece in you that that like all of a sudden just enrages you. The defensive spirit is is quick to roll. I could speak that for myself. I'm sure you can relate to that, man. You get defensive, and all of a sudden, the you know the the yoga like hissing cat comes out. You know, like you're angry, you're frustrated, you lash out. What well, we saw in the text in First Peter, the godly defense is gentle. Is gentle. It, it's as if it is slow to speak and slow to become angry. It's as if it hesitates to give room for the Spirit to work even in the slander. Come on. Because every single one of us have been slandered before, even at times to our face. We've been gossiped about. We've wanted to punch people. Let me just ask this in a moment of vulnerability. Is there anyone here who has never wanted to punch someone else in their life? Is there anyone here that's never wanted to punch somebody else? Okay. So we're all UFC fighters then, trained. Okay? This is who we are. Right? So if this is the case then, then as God's spirit works in us, making a godly defense would be gentle. We could also say this secondarily, okay? Next slide. A defensive spirit reacts. Quick to react. Not proactive. A a defensive spirit is, is taking in what someone else has said or done. And merely and simply reacting to it. I would say it this way, that a godly defense responds. Uh, to me, when I think of the, la- the language, and maybe it's splitting hairs, some of the rhetoric, but a response is thought out, is thorough. Uh, a response has some intentionality there within. Okay. So, in other words, what I believe Paul's getting ready to do is not have a defensive spirit to the, uh, to the church in Corinth, though all of his rhetorical questions and sometimes harshness seems like it. I think he is making a godly defense. Are we all good? Okay, makes sense? So let's keep going here. Here we go. His godly defense. Literally the rest of this uh, from verse uh, 4 to all the way from verse 12. Do we not have the right to eat and drink, he says. I want to look at verse 5. Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Finally, in verse 6, and we'll explain. Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Okay. Apparently, they are not only questioning his apostleship, but... Because Paul has never asked for money from the church in Corinth, 
that is a contributing factor to why they question their, his apostleship. So in other words, there must be other teachers, preachers, ministers that the church in Corinth is supporting. And apparently Paul hasn't asked for a dime and Corinth hasn't given him a dime. And so because of that, they're putting Paul and other teachers on different playing fields. Are we together? Okay. So the first thing he says in verse 4, do we not have the right to eat and drink? So uh, just as an image here, my guess is some of the rest of you, your first job was uh, in, a, in, a, in a food establishment of some kind. Any, any of you guys? Okay. And I, certainly some of you guys still work in the food industry, love the food industry, praise the Lord for the food industry, right? Come on now, right? My first job, many of you guys know, is at Ponderosa Steakhouse, okay? Uh, it's more affectionately known as Ponderosa, but uh, those in my hometown called it Ponderosa. Um, there was a lot of good stuff there. I've talked about it here before. The nacho cheese and the nachos there, like, were straight from the Lord Jesus. So if you ever, I think they've pretty much all closed down there, but if you do have a chance to dribble some of that cheese on your face, I would highly recommend it, okay? But the, the situation here for Paul is like this. If one of my fellow waiters and myself go into our boss at Ponderosa and the boss says, all right, here's what's going to happen. You guys are both going to work. In fact, Mark, you're going to work more. Mark, you're going to work twice as much. And here's what we're going to do. We're going we're to pay uh, a Peter, okay? We're going to give him resources. We're going to hook him up. In fact, he can even take his tips home. But Mark, here's what's going to happen. You're going to work for free. So you're going to show up, you're going to put on that little green apron, you're going to sing the happy birthday song with, with a smile, right? You're going to deliver drinks, you're going to hopefully uh, prepare and deliver people's steaks on time, and you won't get a dime. Okay. That is essentially what's going on in court. People are doing the same amount or more work, some are getting paid, and some are not. And so what Paul says is, hey, can we eat and drink? Like, like, aren't we allowed, isn't it a right of ours for the, church, for the church to support us by providing us food and, and maybe even lodging, which was certainly customary and known, okay? Then he says this in verse 5, don't we have the right to take along a believing wife as the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord? And what's the word there? Come on. Cephas, maybe you didn't know this, okay? Peter was married. Did you know this? Okay, Mark chapter 1 alludes to Simon's mother-in-law. And here Paul uh, um, accompanies that text. Okay. So what Paul's saying is, I have the right in Christ to take a wife on mission with me. So I have a biblical Christian Jesus right to bring my wife along and for you as a church, Corinth, to supply. Not just for me, but to also supply for my wife. Okay, and anyone here, and that's why this, this passage is, is a little bit strange in that. Like, I've, I've never taught on a passage before that's talking about paying the ministers, okay? So you can see how it could be misconstrued here, right? And some of you guys are brand new, you're like, oh, great. Like, here we go. You know, here the passage, and the pastor is going to talk about getting paid. No, I know, like, I don't want to come at it from that angle, but I want you to see what, what the text is saying. Paul's saying is, I have that right in Christ, and finally, he says this, or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Do you guys know what Paul did on the side? How did he, how did he earn a living often? From what? Tent making, okay? He was like the first Boy Scout ever, right? 
right? I've never been a Boy Scout, will never be a Boy Scout, cannot pitch a tent. Some of you guys that have ever been to Ecuador with me, you know, I just kind of defer. I pray, right? I stand back as others are building the tents, and I'm like, God, please make it happen, right? Mike Malone and I got to uh, sleep in a tent together uh, in Ecuador last year, and the guys, complete commercial break, but it'll be fun. So, you know, Mike and I are a little bit older, a little bit seasoned. Mike, a little more than me, and... Um, just the two of us, and the young dudes thought it would be funny. What did they put in our, in our tent one? It was like dark one night. They put like a, a yeah, a miniature dragon. It was like a six-inch locust, okay? And it's completely dark, right? And so this, like Mike and I are like, you know, we're kind of, we're starting to snooze. We're kind of cuddled up, cozy, you know? And all of a sudden, this like locust of death is in our tent. Anyway, <laughs> if I would have put the tent together, we would have fallen out. Thankfully, someone else had. Okay. But Paul made a living from, from making and building tents, So what Paul's saying is, look, 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 I have a right to not have to do that. I don't have to make tents. I could be supported by the church, he says very, very clearly. So let's keep going as he continues to make his very, very clear defense. Now some metaphors, verse 7. Who serves as a soldier at his own expense, right? In other words, like who goes to war and has to pay themselves? Right? I mean, uh, you don't, the, the World War II vet didn't have to go fight the war and then at night, like, works, work at, a, at, a, at a, you know, a French pub. It doesn't work that way. A second part of the a metaphor here, a farmer who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit. Right? You, you, you plant a vineyard and you, you get to eat some of the, what, what does a vineyard, you get to eat some of the watermelons. Okay? Right? Like, you plant a watermelon, you eat a watermelon. Right? I don't know. I'm sorry. Oh, and finally... Look at this. Or who, a shepherd metaphor, or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk. You guys see his point. Like he keeps reiterating it, right? A a soldier doesn't have to work extra. Okay? Someone who is a farmer doesn't have to work extra. They eat off the land. Someone who's a shepherd, okay, is able to uh, take from the flock. Verse 8, I love this. Look at this. Crazy awesome. Do I say these things on human authority? Which would have been a huge point for the readers. Because they begin to think that this is Paul's opinion. Uh, Part of what we've talked about as a staff is why does he wait until chapter 9 to address this? Why does he wait until chapter 9 to add 17 rhetorical questions, which he's clearly passionate about. Well, I think it not only proves that he doesn't have a defensive spirit in it, but I think it also proves that he is building a theology and doctrine in the beginning of his letter so that he can continue to show that he comes in the authority, not of man, but of God. And so now as he quotes Deuteronomy, okay, even though the context is different, I'll explain here in a second, His point is, I come as a sent one from God, as an apostle of God, and I'm communicating the truths of God. And I just want to say right now, there is such freedom in communicating the truth of the scripture in right context and in right doctrine, for right theology, for God's glory. There is such freedom in it. That's why maybe some of you guys who who come here, you're like, why every week do we talk about Jesus? Because there's freedom in it. I don't have to like walk off the stage and say, man, I hope that they understood that self-help stuff. I hope I was creative enough so that, you know, it, it rattled their hearts enough so that they walked out and they could be a better person. 
No, every single week we preach God's word because God's word is authoritative and Christ rules and he reigns. As we are saying twice tonight, he is risen. And so when we preach and communicate a risen Christ from the authority of God, then all of us can walk away from here and say to, to God be the glory. Okay. So he says again, okay, look at this, verse 9. For it is written in the law of Moses, okay, and he knows, man, some law of Moses is going to bring the heat. Look at this, Deuteronomy. You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Okay, um, just for a moment, I want to be an ox, um, <clears throat> as it were. Um, so the way that an, an ox would 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 uh, thresh the grain and and uh, work out the grain is he would literally like like spin around and stomp on the grain, and then eventually all of what was left would be thrown up in the air, and the chaff would be blown by the wind, and what was left was the good stuff. So what he's saying, though the context in Deuteronomy is a little bit different, the point Paul's making is, wouldn't an ox have the right to eat? So you wouldn't muzzle an ox. You wouldn't, like, as the ox is working hard, put a, put a muzzle on his face and say, mm-mm, shame, 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 right? Like, you, you, can't, you can't eat what you're working hard on. No, no, the, the, you would say, like, go ahead. You're working hard. Why don't you have a piece, Right? That's his point. Let's keep going. He continues to reiterate this point, okay? Does not, verse 10, does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. In other words, at Ponderosa Steakhouse, I should be working in hope that I would, I would at least have the right to be paid. So what Paul's saying is like... I, I, like, I'm, I'm working, and there's a certain level of hope that comes with that. Now, hang on here. Verse 11, if we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? So, in other words, Paul's saying, for instance, you're hooking up Peter and he's not saying this pridefully. He's saying this in a clarifying way. Look, I just want to be clear. I'm not getting paid a dime and I planted this church. So he's like, you guys in Corinth have a misunderstanding of your freedom in Christ. Now, some of you could be questioning Paul's heart right now. Oh, oh I've seen this, right? Some of you are like, I I've seen this exact play uh, from some televangelists, Right? I've seen some of this on, on Christian TV. You know, in fact, I've seen people use this passage, right? And they, like, they actually put a muzzle on and, you know, like walked around, right? And see, we're not eating, right? Like they actually like played it out, okay? But, but what happens in verse 12 shows us the depth and the core of Paul's heart. And I'm just telling you right now, I don't think we're ready for it. Look at this, verse 12. If others share this rightful claim on you, do we not even more? Look what he says. Nevertheless, we have not made use of this what? Of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you guys see what he's done? 
He has built the case that he has the right to be paid from the church. And then he says, but we haven't used our right. We are at the parking spot, could have turned on the turn signal, but we didn't pull in. We haven't used our right. First of all, there's a lot of questions about about why Paul is sharing this or even more like why hasn't he used his right? We're going to see those get fleshed out here in a second. We're not sure of all of the precise details except to say that Corinth hasn't paid him a dime and he hasn't asked Corinth uh, to this point for a dime. Now, my question in all this is where are we in, this, in, in, in these situations? So I want to walk with you through some scenarios, opportunities, chances, moments where we could embrace this kind of heart and mentality. Uh, Some of these will be easier for you to wrestle with. Others, a little bit more difficult. In Christ, I have a right or freedom to, number one, we could say this, eat and drink, right? Is there anything in the New Testament that restricts outside of gluttony, okay, sinful behavior, the lack thereof, lack of eating, is there anything that restricts our eating and drinking. Is there any kind of dietary restrictions? Right? Again, on the drink side, we could certainly go the alcohol route and say that uh, scripturally we're not to get drunk. But scripture does not say that we cannot drink. Okay? Scripture does not say you must eat a Papa John's pizza okay, like once a week or you must have you know, this kind of meat or that kind of meat. Some of us would appreciate those laws. right? Like, Lord, if it was only so. okay. But... Could there be times where because of the gospel and not wanting to be an obstacle in it, first of all, let me step back before I even make that statement again. God does what he wants to do. Are we all together? He's sovereign. Sovereign. He does what he wants to do. At the same time, at the same time, do we, do I, do you in any way want to step in the way of someone's pursuit of Christ. Again, we're either helping people to Christ or we're inviting them into darkness. That's what Paul's talking about. So, could there be times where I would give up my right of eating in a specific setting with a specific group of people because I know that maybe they struggle with gluttony or they struggle with this aspect of food or they struggle with alcoholism Or they struggle with other pieces of drinking. And I would say, look, it's my freedom in Christ to eat and drink. But I don't want to be an obstacle in the gospel. So what I'm going to do, I don't want to be a stumbling block. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to surrender my right to do so. I'm going to give up the parking spot. I'm just going to say, I'm not going to go there. Next slide. In Christ, I have a right or freedom to have possessions. Hello. Okay. I have seen many illegalistic uh, categories say, thou shalt not have a TV. Okay. Thou shalt not watch The Bachelor. Okay? And, and I would actually add that if I were God to the 11th commandment. But <laughs> right? Some of you guys have seen this, right? Like legalistic teaching. Oh, oh, you guys have a TV? Yep, you must not be a Christian. Right? And then you're like, defend it. You're like, no, we only watch PBS, I promise. You know, like, <laughs> I promise. Right? Like, we never... We have a... Scriptural right to have possessions. 
freedom. Now, can you indulge and lustfully go after possessions? Yes. But could there be times? Could there be times where you would say, you know what? My pursuit of possessions in this way could be an obstacle for some in the gospel. Could portray something to the body of Christ, a message that I don't want to give or portray. And so instead of indulging in this uh, particular possession or in this kind of possession, you know what? I'm going to give up that right for the glory of Christ, pursuit of Christ, and to not be a stumbling block in others. You see how this is playing out? Okay, Paul's doing the exact same thing. He has literally given up his right to be paid from the church in Corinth for a reason that we're going to see here in the end. Let's get a little more specific. Next slide. In Christ, I have a right to marry. We just studied this earlier in 1 Corinthians. Some of you are like, it doesn't feel like I have a right. In fact, I feel like I have a wrong. Okay, that's what, that's what some of you guys are feeling like. We in Christ have a right to be married. Uh, Paul has taught on singleness. But what happens? And would the church celebrate? If all of a sudden you felt like even though it was your right in Christ to get married, that God would call you and direct you to give up that freedom to pursue Christ in a different way or to help others pursue Christ in a different way or to live missionally in this specific kind of context. And again, I know to all of us this is very, very foreign. Why? Because we live in a deserved culture. I'm going to park in the parking spot because I deserve it. I was there first. I'm going to eat the food because I was in line. I'm going to go ahead and buy all I can possibly buy because God has hooked me up. We live in a I've done and so therefore I deserve culture, mindset, way of thinking. Do you understand how counter the gospel that is? The gospel says you deserve nothing and yet you've given it and, and, and gotten it all. You deserve absolutely nothing. And yet Christ has given you every facet of what you could ever ask for in his love and his grace. So fourthly, let's keep getting more specific. This gets heavy. In Christ, I have a right to enjoy leisurely time. Okay, again, I know there's legalistic sects out there that, that say certain uh, facets of this, but there's nothing in the scripture that says thou shalt not watch American Idol for an hour with your spouse. Last season, RIP, right? Like, like there, there's nothing... There's nothing in the scripture that says that. But, even though inside you feel like you so desperately need it, if I don't have an hour on the couch just like, you know, like mind relaxing with a little, you know, dead people walking around, if I don't have that hour tonight, okay, if I don't have that hour tonight, I'm done, I'm done for but what if, what if, what if? All of a sudden you looked across the room at your spouse and you said, you know what? I've worked X amount. I've given out X amount. I'm absolutely exhausted. I have nothing left. I deserve an hour on the couch and a little Rick, you know? But tonight, I'm gonna give up my rights and I'm gonna go pursue my spouse and even though I'm completely and utterly exhausted, I'm going to listen to their heart. And even though I'm going to be tempted to fall asleep, I'm going to give up my freedoms in Christ to watch a TV show tonight so that I can grab the heart of my spouse. 
Yeah, see how this plays out. Okay. Next slide. Let's look at a couple more. In Christ, I have a right to retire. Hello. Come on now. Right? I mean, go to Florida and just live it up. Right. Right? I mean, again, in Christ, okay, there is nothing legalistic that says thou shalt never retire. Right. You shall, you know, work in, in your job until the day that you die. You shall do it. No. Okay. I personally have this image that I might just die in the pulpit one day, right? Like 85 years old, just going out, right? Preaching, just dead, right? Like some of you guys have heard this story, but uh, some folks asked my son Dawson, who's six, what he was going to be when he grew up. And maybe I've told you guys this, but he said, uh, oh, I think I'm going to be a pastor. And, and, uh, and they were like, well, are you going to pastor Matthias? And Dawson said, yeah, because all the pastors will be dead. Um, so I'm, <laughs> all right. It's advantageous. So be it, son. Right? Rock it. But what if? What if? What if? What if all of a sudden you said, you know what? You know what? Even though I have freedom in Christ to retire, and and maybe retirement does mean leaving my profession, but instead I'm going to go out and spend the rest of my days discipling. Listen, I long for and have this image so deeply in my mind, and I'm thankful that we're seeing it in this body. I'm longing for more and more and more seasoned folks in our community that we can continue to celebrate and watch and cheer on as they disciple the younger in the faith here. I know some of you grew up in contexts where discipleship is yet to even be understood or embraced. Listen, imagine the 80-year-olds Okay, and for me, when I was growing up, a whole crew of 80-year-olds, right, blue hair, like glasses out to here, unbelievable people. And yet the, the, the youth, the students, saw them as a harm. Shame on me. Imagine if like little Barbara, 80-year-old Barbara, who had lived in, uh, through tremendous seasons in her life, was taking an 18, 19, 20-year-old girl along with her? What if she gave up her rights to ride into the sunset in glory, in rest, and watching the Golden Girls, and instead she said, no, you know, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to literally spend the rest of my life discipling young women until God calls me home. That's what I'm going to do. And you know old people get up early. They got a whole lot of time to work with. You know? I still remember walking downstairs at both my grandparents' house at like 4 a.m. to go to the bathroom one time, and they're both reading the paper. I'm like, seriously? Is this what I had to look forward to? And now here I am, 4 a.m. All right, here we go. In Christ. In Christ, I have a right or freedom to, speaking of, rest. (laughs) I have a right to it, man. There's nothing scripturally, again, that says, you know what? You probably should never take a nap. Jared, if you take a nap, that's going to be sinful, bro. So no naps for you. Daniel, no naps for you too, right? All of you here in the first row, no naps. The rest of you, maybe, right? But I'm the, no, there's nothing in the scripture that says that. We have a right of freedom to rest. But, but, what if you said, you know what? I'm going to give up that right. I'm going to give up that right to pursue Christ and I'll be an obstacle in the gospel. My contention to you tonight is that embracing the heart of Paul in this matter makes this survival mode mentality life and all of a sudden breathes into it. 
and that some of you who've walked in here feeling like you're in survival mode or dead, it's because you've been gripped by a deserved kind of mentality. And can I tell you what it does? It does the opposite of what it promises. The deserved mentality says, hey, you deserve. Be king for a day. And then you treat yourself like a king for a day. And then what happens? You still leave empty. Why? Because you didn't die. You watch your flesh again rise up instead of claiming victory that your flesh has already been crucified on the cross of Christ. The old is gone and Corinthians says the new has come. Do you guys see? My contention to you tonight is that many of you feel like you're in survival mode because you're living under a deserved mantra. So in all of these categories and a hundred more, it's no, 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 I don't need to give up any right or freedom. They are mine in Christ and they shall never be sacrificed for any reason. And Paul's saying, no, 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 I have rights and I'm going to give them up. So verse 13 and 14 reiterate this. Look at this beautiful, beautiful language. Okay. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple, as if it needs one more nail in the coffin... Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple and that those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? Now what does he bring up? The temple. He brought in the scripture. Now he's going to drop it with the temple. You see, remember where he started in his defense? Okay? Farmer, shepherd, and like metaphors. Okay? Then he got to the Old Testament Deuteronomy and all of a sudden he's bringing in the temple and look where he ends. Verse 14. I see the word Lord capitalized here. Check this out. In the same way, the what? Come on. The Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. This comes from a couple different texts in the New Testament, taking some inferences from it. So, his point is clear, and now he is going to finish his line of thinking. Verse 15. But I have made no use of any of these rights nor am I writing these things to secure any such, what's the word? Provision. You see what he's saying? I'm not doing a bait and switch. He's not building a case so then he could say, well, and since, you, since I asked, actually, um, you know, me and, me and Barnabas, we've been on the road for a while, we're a little bit, we could really use a new ride, you know, so if you guys could, buy us one of those Egyptian chariots and stuff and supply us with some nice horses. That'd be sweet, right? Throw some nice rims on there. Like, no, he's, he's not, he's not going to bait and switch it. He says, I have something else for you. Please hear this. He's teaching and shepherding their heart. You understand? Now, the way that they will hear it, and our challenge tonight is to believe that he's trying to fix behavior. And I know it's very, very easy to come in here week in and week out and just believe somehow that we're trying to fix behavior here. No, please do not misunderstand. We do not fix behavior and then come to Christ. We really believe what we just sang. Come to the open arms of Jesus. Rest in his grace and watch what the Spirit does in your life. The issue is the heart, not fixing behavior. Behavior comes after a changed heart. Are we together, church? So that's what he's doing. He's saying it's a heart issue. I'm not trying to change your behavior. Okay? For, he says, middle of verse 15, and this completely changed my life. Look at this. I would rather, what's the word? Come on. I would rather die 
than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. Now, I'm not, a, I'm not a mathematician, which is probably the wrong use of that word there. But I will say this. Anytime in normal conversation that I ever hear anyone say I'd rather die, then whatever they're saying is pretty significant. Can we agree? Okay. So what Paul is saying is, not boasting in a prideful way, but boasting in a what God's done in my, my life kind of way, he's saying, I would rather die than change the situation. Why? Because I get to show up in Corinth, pray for Corinth, love on Corinth. And for Paul, he was called to not take a dollar up to this point. And so for, for him, he was saying, I get to boast in the Lord and say that God has provided opportunities for me to tent make and make money so that I don't ever have to ask for money from you, Corinth. That won't be the case in every situation, every church, and every ministry. It even wasn't in Corinth. But Paul's saying, don't take that from me. I would rather die, he says, okay? Now let's finish up. Look at this. For if I preach, verse 16, the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. And I love this language because it's reiterating Be in Christ who God's called you to be. Paul called to preach the gospel of Christ in specific context in an apostolic way. You called by the grace and freedom of Christ to extend the love and welcome of Christ in your workplace. You see what he says? What if you went to work every day and said, Woe to me if today I do not love on my co-workers. Woe to me today if I do not shepherd these beautiful children that you've graced me with. That's the kind of heart that Paul is working with here. It's severity. It's serious. It's one that understands. And so he says this finally in verse 17 and 18. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. God's called me to this, and I'm called to steward the gift. Verse 18 and finally, what then is my reward? That in my preaching... I may present the gospel free of charge so as not to make the full use of my right in the gospel. I have a right to be paid, but I'm going to give up that right because God's called me to, to preach in Corinth free of charge. And so some of you are like, yeah, don't see the application. I'm not a pastor and I don't try to get money from ministry and so I'm going to go ahead and leave now. Yeah, actually, I think the application is incredible. Let's say this. When should I give up my rights or freedoms in Christ? That, I believe, is the natural question at this juncture. All right, Mark, I hear you. Paul is making a very clear point. He's reiterated with a bunch of metaphors, 17 rhetorical questions, some scripture. But when should I do that? Like, like how, how does that work? How, how do I know? This is the natural question. The problem is, those of you that have been around here for a minute or two, you know my deep passion against the word what? Against the word should. So the temptation is to hear this teaching. You see all the application tonight, and you're like, okay, so, so when should... 
dang, you know, like, and you're like kicking your feet and digging your heels in. I don't really want to give up my rights. And, and so you walk in the, into the dining room at La Family, and you're like, you know, and you're like, all right, fine, you know, and you like walk out. Puffing your chest out, right, like breathing hard. You're in the parking lot, right, and you, and you have that opportunity. Well, God's told me to give up my rights, so fine. Fine, God. Here, have the parking spot, you commie, you know, and you're like cussing out the person you're trying to serve. So even though this is the natural question, let me tell you what asking this question breeds. Next slide. It breeds this. It, it breeds a question that is driven by being deserved. Well, God's done this, so I guess I should do this. All right, God, so, all right, show me all the ways then. Right now, I'm to surrender my rights. No, tonight, I think the better question, the healthy question, is this. How can I give up my rights and freedoms in Christ? God, you tell me to deny myself and to take up my cross and to follow you. We learned last week that we're not to be a stumbling block for our brothers and sisters. God, please show me how I can, in your strength, give up my rights to be a consistent advocate for the gospel. Well, thankfully for us, there is one who has gone well in advance embracing this mentality. Check this out from the Gospel of John. Jesus, no one takes it from me. What does he say? But what? Come on. I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from who? From my Father. Jesus had the full rights of wearing forever an unfading crown of glory. He gave up his rights and put on a crown of thorns. Jesus had, as the Son of God, every single right to never bear the wrath of God. And yet, he gives up that right. He comes down to earth. He takes on all of our shame, all of our regret, all of our sin. Takes on the propitiation or the wrath of God on our behalf. He gives up his right. So that every single one of us in here could not have an obstacle to the gospel, but that in here could experience the freedom of Christ. He had every right for the Father never to turn his back. He had every single right to stay right by the Father. And he's praying in the garden if there's any other way. And then many of you know what he says, but to your will be done. Jesus gives up his rights for the cause and renown of his Father. Not because he should, but because it's his freedom and joy. And you and I tonight in Christ can examine and process and ask God right now in all of these ways that we feel so deserved, what would you call us day by day to relinquish in our rights so that your grace and love may be shown to others? That is the power of the gospel at work in us. And so because of those rights that he gave up, 
tonight, brothers and sisters, members of the family of God can come to the table. It was his right to not have a broken body, but he gave up that right and his body was broken. And so tonight we can come to the table and we can take a piece of this bread which represents the broken body of Christ and we can dip it in the cup which represents the shed blood of Jesus and we can together share in how Christ has gone before us as the front runner, Hebrew says. I know that many of you tonight feel like you're in survival mode. You feel like you're dead. But can I remind you that in the broken body and blood of Christ, all who share in it have life and life to the full. Come to the table tonight. He is our means of life. Surrendering his rights so that we could know his love. Respond when you're ready. Let's worship together.